0: Hello everybody. Welcome to the It's a Brain Thing podcast. My name is Nate Sheets and today we are going to go through chapter three in our Beyond Behaviors book club. Beyond Behaviors is a fantastic book by Dr. Mona Delaha. I do hope that you've purchased the book if you haven't already and that you've been listening and getting a lot from what we've done so far. Thanks for your patience as I just struggle in my day-to-day life right now in in getting things done. The pandemic is definitely a layer of complexity (laughs) in my already... uh, somewhat chaotic world and um, I I don't want to get too behind on these so I do thank you for your patience. It is interesting for me to look at my day-to-day struggles with my brain and try to think about what what glimpse into these kids lives am I having right now. Is it the fact that just looking at the a big picture or a task is overwhelming? Like when I look at my page of emails that I have to kind of just sort through, most of them I don't even have to reply to, but I just have to go through each one to clear them off the inbox um, because I don't like to have things in my inbox. That's the kind of person I am. And just seeing a screen of you know 18 emails to sort is overwhelming. And like I should know this. Like this is this is stuff that I am telling people about, and yet I'm I, you know I'm totally experiencing the same thing. Uh, maybe I'm getting a sense of the irritability that comes with you know i'm i'm finally able to focus on something and then somebody comes in and interrupts me and and there's that forced transition and of course the person who interrupted me had no ill will but the irritation of having to essentially break the focus that that one has finally achieved sometimes creates you know an emotional regulation issue or a look of irritation or a moment of what the heck dude I'm sure that all of you have moments as we continue to sort through being at home all the time, and now some of us are navigating the world of reopening. Things are different, and a lot of people are struggling. It also didn't help that I didn't have my meds this past week, but that's (laughs) neither here or there. And just a quick reminder that Dr. Delahook does not endorse anything that I am saying. You know, like even right now. I'm sitting here trying to say the disclaimer that Dr. Delahook does not endorse everything I'm saying, and I said it once, and I kind of tripped up, so then I had to stop, and then I said it again, and I tripped up, and I had to stop, and, like, after a few of those, like, my brain just wants just to stop recording, because it's like, what is the point? Even though I have everything written out and ready to go, there is this non-conscious impulse to just stop. And that is what we describe, at least this is what I believe we describe as, avoiding cognitive effort. And so when you hear that term, I want you to remember that's what it is. When somebody is avoiding cognitive effort, it is not necessarily conscious, but it's just a response to cope with the inability to access a skill. What I'm struggling to do is, is just say what I what I need to say and to organize my thoughts and to initiate those thoughts, right? And, and just something as simple as saying a sentence is send these impulses through people who struggle with executive functioning, whether it be somebody with ADHD or somebody with an FASD. So anyway, just so you guys know, Dr. Delahook does not endorse anything that I'm saying. I'm doing these book clubs independently. I really just believe in this book and how important it is for pretty much every person to read it, not only to understand what our kids with FASDs are frequently going through or what kids who've been in foster care are frequently going through, but to understand human behavior differently. A lot of the issues that are in the systems, and by systems I mean big systems like schools or the justice system, but I also mean family systems, our everyday difficulties getting our child integrated um, and included in the community and in our families, A lot of these problems have to do with a misunderstanding of human behavior. What is behavior? People do not know. We go with our intuition. And if there's anything that we need to understand, you know, in these times, it's that our intuitions should not be guiding how we view the world. We really have to question these things. So it feels like our kids being a little brat, but there's probably a lot more to the story. In chapter 3 in Dr. Della Hook's book is about individual differences, and th- this might seem like, just at first glance, something that we've already gone through, but it also has a significant uh, part of the book, which is a sensory component. So the need to take in individual differences for each child or to individualize a plan for each child, that is going to be crucial in working with them. This is not just a value. This is a practical thing. This is a, if you do not individualize, then you are not going to see success type of message. And we left off in chapter two understanding what is possibly going on. So now by combining what we've learned so far and and going into chapter four where we're going to talk about what do we do, How do we actually start to make progress? Um, We're going to have a wonderful foundation of knowledge. And again, people tend to want to go to the what do we do part, but Dr. Delahook has walked us through a foundation of learning in the first three chapters that is very, very important, including the sensory worksheets that are part of this chapter. Why is individualization important? Well, Dr. Delahook tells us. She tells us that individualization, quote, also moves us away from building explanations and solutions based upon our own personal biases or our limited scopes of s- subspecialization and that could be seen as a message to a professional because professionals tend to specialize um, and so for me for example you know she could be saying, to Nate, don't assume everything is an FASD, or don't assume everything is a cognitive, a specific cognitive issue, which is generally my lens, right? And that's really important that we we have our, our specialization, but we're not necessarily uh, using that to explain everything. Even though at first glance, it might seem like everything could be explained through FASD. That's really why you got to question it, because it's, it's just going to be more complex than that. Dr. Delahook also tells us that appreciating individual differences, quote, explains why two children may react differently to the same situation. And that's on page 59. And if you've been in the FASD community for a while, you have heard these stories of how can these siblings react so differently? How can these twins react differently differently? Well, the answer is it's not just about your genetics. It's about your development. And so the developmental processes that we talked about in the previous chapter give us the insight into that. It is impossible to give somebody an identical experience to somebody else just by having them in the same environment. Our brains are way too advanced, right? They will, our brains are picking up on patterns constantly from infancy. Um, there's no way that, the, that two different brains are just going to do the same thing. And so we'll see that, of course, practically in how kids respond to stressors, how they respond to a disability, how they respond to sensory dysregulation, etc. And it includes, quote, the way we experience processes in the body, sensations, feelings, and thoughts. And that's page 59 from Dr. Delahook. And I want us to think about the term she just used, processes in the body, sensations, feelings, and thoughts bodily processes sensations feelings thoughts that is the order that we should be going in based upon what we know about developmental processes and dr delahook is going to walk us through that bodily processes sensations feelings thoughts with kids we tend to go directly to feelings or to thoughts we want to know why are you doing that what are you feeling But these feelings are probably associated with a bodily process or sensation. We do not necessarily always know this. And we know that kids cannot regulate a lot of these sensations because they don't recognize it and they could be having faulty neuroception. So if a child, let's say their body starts to kind of rush, like, you know, the blood starts flowing, they start to have this feeling based upon something in the environment that's not actually a stressor, going up to that child who's now in a, who's having a physiological response, probably onto the red pathway, maybe onto the blue pathway, and saying, what are you feeling? Tell us what you feel. We just want to help, <laughs> right? Or what's going through your brain right now? Those, those questions in the moment will not help because A, they cannot identify it, especially in the moment. And conversation does not help with a bodily process response until you've had a significant amount of executive functioning development. For me, if I start to be triggered by something my anxiety, depending on what it is, I can sometimes walk myself through it, right? But I am on my own journey and I happen to know certain things that maybe most people don't know in terms of how we can use our brains to soothe, to regulate. And so I can actually use my intellect as Nate Sheets, the 34-year-old adult right now, is able to do that to some degree, very imperfect. But kids and kids who've been through what we're talking about on this podcast are not going to be able to do that yet. Dr. Delahook brings up Richie who has type 1 diabetes and the diabetes was discovered when he was about seven because his parents started to notice outward physical signs. Uh, He was extremely thirsty He was lethargic. He was frequently using the bathroom. And his parents, you know, they immediately responded. They did all they could. They learned about diabetes. They were trying to be very mindful about his health. And when he was in third grade, Richie started to display challenging behaviors. So he was seven. That's about, you know, kindergarten or first grade. That's when the diabetes was discovered. But by third grade he was having his diabetes managed, um, but started to display challenging behaviors around his homework. And up until that time, Richie's mood changes were associated with his fluctuating glucose levels in his blood. And the mood changes, and, and as she's describing this, I'm reading about pretty much every family I work with. The mood changes started to stress out the whole family, and everybody became even more vigilant in monitoring his blood sugar level, because that's what They were associating it with. And as Dr. Delahook tells us, it wasn't just the glucose level that was contributing to these sudden shifts in mood, but it was also, quote, the vigilance around its management, the diabetes management, created its own stress between family members. And that's on page 61. Eventually, Dr. Delahook helped the family set up more independent ways for Richie to monitor his blood glucose levels so that it would be less stressful for everyone, right? And so some of the ideas that she mentions, he used a whiteboard in his room to remind himself of, quote, the early signs of both low blood sugar levels and high levels, um, and what to do about either. And that was on page 62. Dr. Delahook also mentioned that Richie eventually gave his class a lesson on what juvenile diabetes is quote, empowering him to demystify it for himself and his friends, unquote, on page 62. Now, I want us to again be reminded that the whiteboard is advanced, right? Richie was already at a level of development to where putting a whiteboard in his room and using that as a tool to monitor his signs of low or high blood glucose, that takes a significant amount of skills. And so just throwing a whiteboard in our kids' room right now is probably not going to be helpful if they have an FASD because we're going to have to take things back even further step which Dr. Delahook will walk us through. She shows us Richie's iceberg so she's bringing back this iceberg analogy where it's easy for us to see things above the surface such as challenging behaviors. We have to look below the iceberg to see what are the factors going on here and where is this child in their developmental processes. So for Richie, above the iceberg, we see his behaviors, his meltdowns, his homework refusal. But below the iceberg, we see his difficulties with managing his emotions. Sometimes this has to do with his blood glucose levels. Sometimes this has to do with the management of the diabetes itself. There's multiple ways that juvenile diabetes impacts him. Dr. Delahook is mentioning Richie really to introduce us to this idea of bodily sensations. In his case, he has high or low blood glucose levels, and that can translate directly into less regulation abilities because he's having some kind of sensation. So it's really important for you to flag a sensation that's very distinct to you. One somewhat recent one that I've found out about myself is when I don't eat anything in the mornings. Which is pretty typical of me. I, I essentially I get busy, I forget to eat, um, and it's worse on my medication because it suppresses my appetite, so I, I I don't feel hungry. But there's a point of the morning, usually about maybe two hours after I'm awake and I've started working, where my stomach will kind of give me this sensation that it's hungry, and for a long time i would when i was having the sensation i would become very anxious because for me anxiety is very much happening in my stomach and in my head and so the, i really discovered this probably in the past 2 years this is very new which again is kind of funny to me because i would think that i would be able to recognize hunger right in my then 32 year old body and so the, the sensation was the hunger, but it immediately was negatively paired when we talked about this as an anxiety. So I I, I would be sitting there working and I, this still happens. I it still is very much an anxiety thing. I will start feeling anxiety. And so I have to be mindful in that moment to to stop and say, hold on, what's going on here? Am I hungry? And then I can initiate what I need to do to deal with that. But what often happens for me, at least, and I'm going to guess for a lot of people with executive functioning issues, is you just kind of power through because, you know, I don't know what the anxiety is about. So there's no really use to just stop and examine it. Right. If if, if there's no connection between the body sensation and the anxiety, sitting there and examining the anxiety is pretty fruitless, especially if, if you struggle to even think about things in these terms. And so what the person does is they're feeling these sensations, they're feeling this anxiety, but they just push through, right? So I just keep on working and I and I might still continue to have anxiety uh, until I'm essentially forced to confront it on a conscious level. For kids, they push through either because they need to or because they're forced to by adults. If you're having these sensations at school, Um, But everybody's kind of pushing you from one situation to the next via expectations and or actual pushing or leading um, from one thing to another. And and there's no ability to stop and recognize, hold on, this bodily, this normal bodily sensation, which in in Nate's case is hunger, is creating a sense of anxiety which should not be there. And, And that's what I was saying earlier when I say I'm able to cognitively calm myself down. Because if I'm in that scenario now and I feel the sensation and my executive functioning flags it and says, oh, it's the morning thing, Nate, you've forgotten to eat, you need to go eat, I can sit there and just think about it for a second and the anxiety goes away immediately. And that's through more advanced cognitive regulation. And so this issue with me and forgetting to eat and my stomach and anxiety, that's a very specific example that I can go to when I think of this idea of a bodily sensation especially one that, in my particular case, directly leads to faulty neuroception. And so we want to think about kids who've experienced very early issues with their bodies, their physical bodies. And, of course, this is going to be applicable to kids with FASDs um, and a lot of the kids who've been through the foster system. Um, But there are other things, such as medical issues, that can have some kind of impact in bodily sensations and processing very early on. And so Dr. Delahook introduces us to Leon, who was born prematurely, had difficulty breathing as a newborn and maintaining body temperature. He spent several weeks in the NICU after developing an infection. He had lots of care right his parents were there at his side but it doesn't matter it was still very stressful that's not how our bodies you know are expecting us to come into the world and not how our brains are expecting us to come into the world so they have to adapt immediately and what was going on for Leon as a premature infant he he frequently had to have blood drawn from his um, heel and that caused him to cry he had a stress response and that continued to happen for a little while And when he came home, quote, one of the first things they noticed was how sensitive he was to the environment. If someone switched the lights on in his room, his whole body recoiled. On the other hand, he seemed to sleep better if there was a lot of background noise. Unfortunately, he was back in the hospital at six months for several weeks when he developed a bronchial infection. And this is page 64 and so we see that for some of these kids it's not just being born premature but now they are back in the hospital for something scary again and as he continued to develop leon showed more signs of being very sensitive to environments We surmise that the painful medical procedures he had experienced as an infant had sent his body onto a red pathway from which he could not escape, creating subconscious memories linked to certain sensations such as lights and noise. These early sensory experiences, along with his constitutional and genetic makeup, created a threat detection system that was all too easily triggered. As a result, the vulnerable toddler had difficulty tolerating many everyday sensations, including those in a busy preschool environment. The way he adapted and tried to feel safe from the body up was to control, cling, and protest. Unquote, page 65. And just being the somewhat pedantic person that I am, I would just say the way his brain adapted. Because again, this is not a conscious adaptation on the part of an infant or a toddler. Of course, this is just what our brains are designed to do when faced with these kinds of difficulties. And Leon's team eventually moved forward by making a plan to, quote, help him relax and feel safe in the classroom and at home. And over time, she tells us that Leon, quote, used top-down thinking to overcome his body-up reactions and feelings. So what we want to start with in this whole big process that we've been talking about is investigating the body and the bodily responses that our child could be going through. So whether it was medical trauma or issues in development of the body due to alcohol exposure or whatever early type of trauma, the infant is only able to use the tools that it's developed, which, as we already learned, is just to adapt at this point. The the tools are to adapt and to increase survival. So when the body experiences a familiar, negatively-coded body sensation, that's why it can immediately trigger these feelings based on unsafe neuroception, right? Going back for some of them, and maybe some of you listening, if you experienced early medical trauma like we're talking about here, this could be very much applicable to you. So it, it triggers these feelings of unsafe neuroception because of those early experiences. And now we get into a critical concept in this book, which is sensory interventions and understanding what our sensory systems are and the relevance they have to all that we're talking about, which is really, to me, a huge key in beginning to make progress with kids who've been through trauma or kids with FASDs. On page 68, Dr. Delahook tells us, quote, my biggest criticism of mental health and education training programs is that they do not teach about the body-brain feedback loop and how this affects children's behaviors from the body up, unquote. Additionally, she tells us sensory processing, quote, is regulated to a subspecialty in the field of occupational therapy. And this is page 68. She tells us, quote, the role of sensory processing and children's overall development is not yet integrated into the field of mental health, education, or social work in any comprehensive way, even though it's a foundational piece of the puzzle as we interpret children's behaviors and how to help them. And that's very true. I am frequently recommending sensory evaluations, and we generally say this is probably going to be through an occupational therapist, because it is very much kind of pigeonholed into that area. And there's a lot of great occupational therapists out there who are starting to understand this. But sensory needs to be something that everybody who works with children understand. And she's, of course, talking about mental health and schools, which, yes and yes, and i'm thinking like the justice system the judges who work on the cases with kids the attorneys who are assigned to kids the casa workers who are working with kids all of these people need to know this information and our only way to form any kind of memories when we are young young children are called sensory based memories we are not remembering the moment we are born and if you think that you remember the moment you you were born um, you are unfortunately fooling yourself. That's impossible. That would be what we call a confabulation. <laughs> when we're thinking about kids who've been through some of these stressors of early medical stuff, trauma, we want to think about how does this relate to sensory interventions and the sensory system. And Dr. Delahook tells us, quote, infants and toddlers operate from the bottom up because their cerebral cortex is still developing. In order to utilize approaches that appeal to a child's thinking brain, we need to know how to support children from the body up so that they can access their top-down thinking brain. And so that's the whole thing. What we think about top-down or bottom-up, red pathway, blue pathway, it all is coming down to us taking a step back and approaching things in a way that actually makes sense based upon a child's development. You cannot go and demand process five and process six development responses to somebody who's barely made it through process one, which is the the case for a lot of the kids that I'm working with. And by say kids, I'm saying actually teenagers and adults. They are seriously lacking the milestones of process one. And so everything we're seeing after that are these adaptations um, or, or ways that their brain has adapted to that, which sometimes doesn't matter. And sometimes it does matter. So we think this kiddo is actually giving us information about how they're feeling, but really they're just scripting, right? They're, and they're using, they're, they're not lying. They're they're trying to give us an answer, but they're limited to the vocabulary that they have been told, right? So the kid might say, yeah, I lied because of this, because we have been telling them for so long that you are lying. So that's just the word they use when really, if, if they have the ability, they might sit back and say, well, actually, I really wasn't lying. They, they, they would tell us, hopefully, what, what I try to tell you could be going on constantly and, and rethink thinking about it. And Dr. Delahook will teach us, quote, how to use a child's sensory preferences to help us calm and de-escalate when a child is on the red pathway and offer up regulating support if the child is on the blue pathway. And when I'm reading about Lucas, who's another child that Dr. Delahook brings up, uh, it was very familiar. And it started on the bottom of page 69. She mentions his parents, quote, found him unpredictable and bewildering. Some days he would wake up happy and energetic, but more often, from the moment he opened his eyes, he was in a surly mood, protesting everything from brushing his teeth to wearing the clothes his parents suggested. Unless they gave Lucas his way, he would explode, crying, fussing, and pushing his little sister at the slightest provocation, unquote. Dr. Delahook worked with the family and figured out that, when Lucas was two years old, he, quote, had developed an unexplained skin rash all over his body. It continued to make him feel uncomfortable for weeks, and, quote, from then on, he became, in his parents' words, the boss of the house, refusing to wear anything but one of three soft t-shirts and responding angrily when asked to wear anything else. She goes on to say, quote, since the behaviors arose so soon after the rash, I surmise that even though the intense itching had disappeared. Lucas retained strong body memories of the discomfort. His behaviors were likely reactions to how those painful sensory memories linked up with his life experiences at the time. So now we have three examples with these kids of types of early body dysregulation that will start the process of the brain making adaptive changes. First was Richie, who developed symptoms of type 1 diabetes a bit later in childhood. Then we had Leon, who had the immediate and ongoing medical issues and hospitalizations from being born premature and then developing an infection. And then finally, Lucas, whose issues with a body rash early on in life still triggers you know, apparent emotional responses. But how? Well, I, I've already explained this a little bit, but Dr. Delahook is now going to explain, quote, our minds pair the sensations we take from the environment with emotions, forming both conscious or subconscious memories of past experiences. This is known as the dual coding of sensations with emotions, unquote. Dual coding. So that's the term of, of pairing a sensory sensation or sensory memory with an emotion, right? And that is that is the adaptive response. That is our what our brain thinks needs to happen in order for us to survive into the future. Uh, She continues, quote, the brain easily memorizes a negative sensory experience, thereby protecting us from repeating the experience. But sometimes these subconscious memories cause hypervigilance and a child responds to this hypervigilance by becoming overly controlling or striking out and landing on the red pathway, unquote, on page 70. So let's link this to the developmental processes that we discussed in the beginning of chapter two. Dr. Delahook uses um, a model created by Dr. Serena Weider and Dr. Stanley Greenspan and we called these the developmental processes and you'll remember that we had process one which was regulation and attention and then we had process two, engagement and relating, three, purposeful emotional interactions, four, shared social problem solving, five, creating symbols and using words and ideas, and six, emotional thinking and building bridges between ideas. Now, if none of those make sense to you right now, that's either a sign that you either have not listened to the previous episodes in the book club, which I would highly recommend you listen to them in order. And also maybe that you haven't read the book because I'm, I'm listing things verbally that are much more <laughs> able to be processed easily by most people visually. And so having the book is going to be really helpful, especially as we go through worksheets we've already hinted at how these developmental processes can be interrupted, right? And they essentially, when when they're interrupted or they cannot happen for whatever reason, this causes an overall delay in various skills, particularly in regulation skills, so emotional regulation or body regulation. And so what this chapter is doing is giving us examples of what causes this delay in development. And that so these are the medical things. These are the fetal alcohol. These are things that are influencing the body. They're not even necessarily immediately influencing the brain, but later on, because of how our sensory systems pair emotions and adapt based upon these bodily sensations, they absolutely have an impact on our emotions. You'll also remember that we've discussed this idea of neuroception of safety. Neuroception is our brain's subconscious assessment of how safe we are, right? So if it has a neuroception of safety, then it's perceiving that we are safe. And being able to perceive the environment is safe at all is part of the first developmental process, right? And so if there's immediate stress, then it's possible that this person has never fully felt safe for a significant period of time. And that's going to obviously have an impact on how that person's brain interprets the world around them. So just to sum it all up, if something in the environment around them or in the person's body, a bodily sensation, reminds the subconscious brain about the previous stress, then there is a response to avoid it. And this is what we're seeing. And again, in so many of the kids who've been through trauma and foster care who have FASDs, this is very, very frequent. And when the trigger is internal, a physiological response, it's going to display as a behavior, which is why Dr. Delahook and I are encouraging you to reinterpret. Remember the iceberg. What is going on? Focusing on the behavior does not address any of these underlying brain or body issues, right? And it's clear if we just say it, but having the understanding that Dr. Delahook has given us up until now, I think is helping you guys Um, from based on what I've heard, like it's clicking, like, of course, this doesn't make sense. And now you have the words to continue to learn and advocate for your child. The continuation of the chapter is about sensory processing and how issues in sensory processing can contribute to behaviors. And this is the part of the book also that has the worksheets that I want you all to go through. We're going to go through one of them together a little bit, but they start on page 71, and there's three of them. And again, these worksheets are extremely important. So if you have multiple kids, you want to fill these out for each kid. You can fill them out for yourself. Thinking about sensory things in this way, and not just when you're doing the worksheets and then you're done, but in an ongoing fashion, will be very, very helpful in problem-solving potential things that we can try more proactively. Dr. Delahook gives us a definition of of what is a sensory system, what are our sensory systems. She says, quote, our sensory systems allow us to hear, see, touch, smell, taste, and feel movement, giving meaning to our experiences, unquote. We, we mention perception a lot in, in, in terms of fetal alcohol, uh, often in, in in this idea of memory or lying in the, in the behavior. But when, when we actually say perception on a literal level, we just mean the way in which this person interprets the world, right? Which, of course, is going to be dependent on the information their brain is able to pick up and how it interprets that information. And so then there's all these different things that happen when, when different parts of your brain work differently. And sometimes it's a quote unquote negative impact on how you perceive the world. Sometimes it's just different. And really what I don't think people understand is just how differently we all think. Even for us to have a conversation about how we think, if I were to sit you down and dig deeper, we would probably find that how you think is way different than how you think that you think immediately, right? A lot of people think that they are verbal thinkers and they're actually not. A lot of people think they're not verbal thinkers, but they actually are visual. You know, all of these things is is based upon how we are are sensing and processing information. And so when I say how do you process, how do you perceive information, it's going to be hard for you to even think about it in terms of your own brain, because we're just so used to taking our experience and thinking that's reality, even though it is not reality. How you see the world, how you are interpreting your experience around you is extremely limited to the tools that your brain has. And so it's not a surprise that when we think of perception, again, our ability to interpret the world around us, or what that interpretation actually is, I should say, sensory processing is a huge part of that. And so Dr. Delahook is helping us understand, again, the importance of understanding not only the sensory system as a concept, but our child's individual sensory system. Because this is a chapter about individualizations. And why? Why? Why do we want to know not only about what is sensory processing, but what is my specific child's sensory processing? Because it, quote, gives us a window into potential triggers, as well as a helpful list of strategies to help children return to the green pathway when they're struggling. This is page 71. And it was great when I read this for the first time. I've already mentioned, you know, I'm not trying to brag. I was recommending that people use sensory preferences as a way to proactively work on things. Simply because I notice that interventions tend to be discussed and implemented in a reactive way after we notice that the kids are struggling, right? So we, oh, well, if they're upset, go give them a big hug, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend or, go, you know, bring out the sandbox with, you know, whatever it is. So on principle, I just think that everything should be proactive. So I wasn't really suggesting it because I, I knew it would work, but I'm just thinking, well, if, if we're doing anything reactive, we should also be doing it proactively if possible. If an issue is related or caused by overstimulation or some other issue of sensory dysregulation, then doing sensory activities before that happens could stave off some of that dysregulation. And of course, this has worked for a lot of parents, but I still don't feel like parents are truly understanding what sensory means and that it's much more than, quote, getting energy out. (laughs) Hyperactivity is is a very good, good, good indication that a kiddo is overstimulated. But it's, it's not just about those particular uh, moments. I think those moments tend to stick out because they're so distinctive. Our kid is in this state of, oh, sometimes they have this kind of crazed smile on their face, uh, kind of hyperactivity. And, th- and that's what I think a lot of people think of when they think of sensory dysregulation. Um, but there is a lot more to it. Dr. Delahook now quickly introduces us to the known areas of sensory processing and how our brains process the information, hearing, seeing, smell, touch taste movement and space sensations and muscles and joints and internal sensations so these are more than just those five senses that we tend to think of and um, we're adding things like movement and space sensations and muscles and internal sensations and there's a few checklists here and we're going to go through some of them um, but I want to emphasize again that this is not something that you should be, re- you know, glancing through this checklist once and thinking that you already got this, right? Many behaviors that would indicate a sensory preference or difficulty don't happen all the time, right? Or they're very subtle or they only happen in certain situations or environment. These worksheets are meant for you to continually look at for a wh- at least for a while and to use and to really question what have I noticed and what haven't I noticed here. This is not meant to be quick. The first worksheet's on page 73, and that's a sensory over-responsive checklist. Each worksheet that we're, we're doing, there's three of them, it will break things up into the categories like seeing, smell, taste, touch, movement and space, etc. And when somebody's brain is over-responsive, it usually means that it's sensitive to the sensation and that that sensation will cause overstimulation or some kind of sensory dysregulation or that the brain is maybe unfamiliar with the sensation and so that that causes an over-responsiveness to it um, and that can potentially cause anxiety or unsafe neuroception um, or it could mean that the sensation has been coded with a negative experience already so there's many different things can fall into over-responsiveness And we have to remember that with sensory dysregulation, yes, there comes overstimulation. And that's typically what I will say. But we cannot forget that for so many kids, not only does sensory dysregulation mean overstimulation, but it means they are now experiencing that unsafe neuroception based upon their early experiences. So it's much more than just needing to do an activity. They are likely on some level feeling unsafe. Dr. Delahook starts us off with auditory and sound, a couple of examples that we might see. Um, Our child holding hands over their ears to protect themselves from the sounds. They might have difficulty completing work if there's background noise. Those could be signs of being over-responsive. As a kid, these kinds of things didn't apply to me, um, but of course I've seen many clients who these particular examples do apply to. And as they get older, we might notice less outward signs. So they may not have their hands over their ears because they've adapted, right? But it doesn't necessarily mean that there is not an issue. So they might leave the area. They might tell everybody to shut up. So they might have a challenging behavior, but they are still experiencing potentially that sensory dysregulation, or maybe it's even sending them onto the blue pathway. She goes through tactile and touch. And just to give an example here, we might see that there that kids with these over-responsive issues to tactile and touch are going to be sensitive to certain fabrics or certain textures. Um, Dr. Delahook gives us the example of not wanting to be barefoot on sand or grass. They may like very strong hugs or they may not like hugs at all and not all of this necessarily applies to everyone who has tactile sensitivity so this really does have to be individualized it plays out differently in different people just thinking of textures and touch i remember that as a child i hated the texture of wooden spoons and my parents would use wooden spoons while cooking, right? You would stir things, you would taste from it. Um, and I could not stand that texture. And I still do not use chopsticks. When I'm at a restaurant where they offer chopsticks, I do not take them unless they have plastic available because I can handle that texture, but I still can't handle that rough wood texture, at least that my brain is associating with those kinds of utensils. Dr. Delahook talks about visual over These kids are going to struggle with bright lights, maybe with the sun... We might notice that they avoid eye contact even if they seem to be doing well. They may be easily distracted by too many wall decorations in the room or too many things happening around them if there's something happening out the window. She goes through taste and smell. We also want to think about the senses that we're less familiar with. This includes our movements in space and our vestibular systems, which, quote, provide information about the position and acceleration of the head and body and the relation to gravity. It also includes sensations to the muscles and joints, or the proprioceptive system, which, quote, processes sensations in the muscles and joints. And when we look at this area on the over-responsive checklist on page 74, We're going to see that children with sensitivities may struggle when their feet leave the ground. They might avoid climbing and jumping. Um, They may often avoid activities that require a lot of movement, so they won't want to necessarily run around the playground with peers. And there's a lot of other examples. Now, we've only gone through the over-responsive checklist here. I didn't want to necessarily walk you through everything on it. But if you can have those all filled out for at least one of the kids that you're thinking about, When we start on chapter four, we're going to have a lot of good tools ready to go, and a lot of things will click together here for you. So I want to thank everybody for listening to chapter three in our Beyond Behaviors book club about individualization and our sensory system. In our next book club series, we're going to start talking about chapter four, which is the beginning of the second part of Beyond Behaviors. And that is about what do we do? What are some of the strategies that we can do based upon all that we know. Please continue to stay safe and I will talk to you all next time.